21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. Well, in this edition of 21st Century Women, we meet Dame Mary Archer, who talks about her love of science and her ambition to get more women involved in the subject. Unsure about whether you want to breastfeed? Well, we speak to breastfeeding counsellor Debbie Abbott, who talks about her role in supporting women in reaching the decision on whether to feed their babies by breast or bottle. And we visit an art exhibition and catch up with artist Jill Whitaker from the art group Links and Layers. That's all coming up in this edition of 21st Century Women. In the studio, we've got Bobby Jones. Hello. We've got Liz Kelly. Hello. And we've got me, Linda Ness. Now, we've got some great things coming up, ladies. We've got, as I've said earlier, Dame Mary Archer. Very, very interesting interview. But we start with breastfeeding. And this was an interview that you did, Bobby, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to hearing this. The Royal College of Midwives have recently updated their position statement on infant feeding to say that it's up to parents to decide whether or not to breastfeed their babies. So Bobby Jones spoke to Debbie Abbott, who's a breastfeeding counsellor who helps women decide how to feed their babies. You, Debbie, find that mums who come into hospital to have their babies have already decided upon what method they wish to use in feeding their babies. And if so, would you seek to change their mind? I think many women do have a a good idea about what they are planning to do as far as feeding is concerned. Many of them will say something like, well, I'll give breastfeeding a try or I'll see how it goes for me. So many of them do choose to start breastfeeding. And actually, uh, at Hinchinbrook Hospital, we have an 80% initiation rate, which means 80% of mothers decide to put their babies to the breast at birth. So that just goes to show that actually many of them will decide to do that. There are women who absolutely know exactly what they want to do, be it breast or formula feeding their babies, and some even who choose to do a bit of both and decide that they are going to mix feed their babies with breast milk and formula milk as well. So yes, as for changing their mind, no, no, not at all. We would give the women as much information or, and opportunities to talk about infant feeding during their pregnancy and once they've got their baby and work with them as to what is the right thing for them and support their choice. Absolutely. That's good to hear. And we're told in that particular report that breastfeeding figures show that British women have the lowest numbers in Europe for breastfeeding. Why do you think that is? I think culturally um, there's a big part to be paid by our culture. The NHS, when it came in, and women went from birthing at home around their families to um, having their babies in hospitals. And, and from then, the majority of our babies are actually born in a hospital with a medical model. 
You then have the advent of uh, marketing of milk formula, which has taken off massively since it was introduced back in the 60s. And the baby milk companies have massive budgets that allow them to promote their products and make them attractive to women. And so many women felt that that was the way they wanted to to move forward. So going back a couple of generations, the majority of babies in this country did have formula milk in the early days and months because it was seen to be the right thing. It was marketed very aggressively and mothers thought that it was as good as breast milk because that was how it was marketed. We now know very differently and we've been able to put laws into place and use the World Health Organization breast milk substitutes to actually prevent and protect advertising for mothers as well so that we can allow us to get the the positive messages over about the benefits to mums and babies about breastfeeding and breast milk. So we're just trying to really redress the balance a little bit um, now to to see if we can just make sure mothers are given all that right information about the differences possibly between giving uh, your baby breast milk and not giving your baby breast milk and, and allowing them to make that informed choice about how they're going to go and feed their babies. Absolutely. It's so important that people make their own decisions, but they have really, really good advice. What do you think about mixed feeding, sort of topping up your baby after you have breastfed with the formula milk? For many mums, breastfeeding works works absolutely fine and they, they don't require to do anything other than give their baby breast milk. Some mothers who struggle in the early days and weeks with uh, some of the common challenges with breastfeeding do sometimes find that just breastfeeding alone isn't working. In ideal world, we would try and protect their lactation and encourage them to express and give that milk as the extra top up. But if they chose not to do that and give formula milk, then sometimes that is a way that they can support breastfeeding. And sometimes it's only short term, sometimes they choose to continue that. But actually, many mums who mix feed don't tend to breastfeed and then top up with formula they tend to do some feeds as breastfeeds and some feeds as formula feeds so because it's quite a lot of hard work sitting down feeding your baby then getting up and preparing uh, the formula milk and then doing it so they sometimes just sort of mix the two up and do alternate feeds or one feed of a formula feed um, to suit them really and I think that it's really important that women know that that is an option for them. Many years ago, and and possibly even still now, many women think they have to decide to either breastfeed or formula feed, but actually there's a massive grey area in between where mothers can do any amount of breastfeeding and support that with formula, whether it be short-term or long-term. And actually any amount of breast milk is a benefit to a baby. So we would encourage any mother who feels that she needs to or wants to use formula as part of her baby's diet in the early weeks and months to continue to breastfeed as and when she wanted to and to formula feed as well. And the baby will still gain some of the benefits. So we would be all applauding of that, absolutely. It's much better than giving up if she can find a way forward by using a little bit of formula and and to support breastfeeding um, rather than stopping and, and, and not giving any breast milk. So, yeah. That's interesting. A couple of times you've said that in the early days they, they might want to top up. So do sometimes people manage to 
get over the difficulties of breastfeeding and then continue quite successfully to breastfeed for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely, Bobby. Um, There are many mums who, uh, getting off the starting block with breastfeeding can be a challenge. In our society, many women have never seen a baby breastfed, certainly close up. And so, you know, learning how to latch your baby on so that it's pain-free and so that the baby gets all the milk it needs and understanding how breastfeeding works it can be a very steep learning curve for mums and dads as well. And, you know, adding to that that mums are tired and emotional, that, that certainly in the early days some mums do come across things like, you know, sore breasts, sore nipples, maybe not having the confidence that their baby's getting enough because they can't see what's going in. And obviously the support around them as well is vital. So if they've got a good support network, whether that be friends, family, partners, healthcare professional, volunteer breastfeeding supporters, finding and accessing that support. Many mums I have seen who have had some really big struggles in the early days and weeks and come out the other side beautifully to breastfeed, absolutely. And I applaud them because they take on a really tough journey sometimes. But it's about getting the right support network around you and accessing that support as soon as possible rather than leaving it. And that makes such a difference. So that's where hopefully we can make sure that the services that are provided in the community and, and things like the National Breastfeeding Helpline number where mothers can ring for support and where groups like I run in St Nits on Tuesdays are accessible and women know where to come and that they feel supported, invited in, made to feel welcome and know that they are going to get experienced and impartial, non-judgmental support to enable them to do whatever they want. The other thing that I sort of was thinking about was that if somebody for some reason cannot breastfeed, in your experience, have you come across people who have found that they feel really, really guilty because for some reason they feel that they weren't being able to give the baby the best start in life? Yeah, absolutely. There are women that that breastfeeding just doesn't work for them for all sorts of reasons. And it's a very difficult journey for, for those ladies um, if they are really keen to breastfeed. You have women who've got underlying medical conditions that can sometimes impact on lactation. Uh, women who've had perhaps breast surgery, that that means that it makes it quite difficult. Yeah, sometimes just that journey right from the beginning... For instance, babies with tongue ties you know, cause, a, you know, quite a lot of difficulties for mothers learning to breastfeed. And if we can access good services to support them until such time as they either decide to have the tongue tie divided, but then often mums will fall by the wayside if we can't get that support to them in a timely manner. And yeah, they, they do. They struggle sometimes with that decision to stop breastfeeding if it's really not working well for them. It's it's very emotional, really, really emotional for them. And it's a big part of what I do is to enable women to come to that decision and conclusion and find a way forward themselves, really, rather than making decisions for them. That's not what it's about, is to try and make it as pain-free as possible. And if we can find a way that maybe the baby could have breast milk, 
but not go to the breast, that sometimes is a good compromise for the mum. Or like I said earlier, a combination of breastfeeding with formula as well is sometimes enough to help a mother come to terms with the fact that it's really not working for them. Thank you so much. Gosh, that was really interesting. There are so many things there sort of coming up that maybe we can look at at another time. But thank you very much, Debbie Abbott. was Debbie Abbott, who's a breastfeeding counsellor, speaking to Bobby Jones. The music was Stevie Wonder, Isn't She Lovely? Next month, we'll be continuing the theme by speaking to Jenny Barrett. She holds mantinatal classes. Yes, you heard it right. She holds mantinatal classes, especially for men. Um, so any dads-to-be should tune in next month. Absolutely. It's going to be a fascinating interview. That was very good as well. I remember, and I don't know if you two, because we have all had children between us, mm-hmm. I remember that awful period of being a new mum and just worrying about absolutely everything. And the feeding is a big, big thing, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it, yeah. Because you're frightened that you're going to lose them if you don't feed yep. them. And they're, they do they're so wrong. hungry. They're new, they're, they're really mm. hungry. They want you fairly soon after birth don't they yeah they're, they're calling for you that's right and I was in a situation certainly with mine I she was very premature and she had to be whisked away immediately to intensive care and she had to be fed through a tube that was going down oh. into her yeah. so it made the feeding situation very very difficult because she spent about a week in, in uh, intensive care and she was fine it was just purely that she was very very small but it made, it made the breastfeeding which I wanted to do incredibly difficult and in the end I was doing a bit of a mixture of the two and in the end I, I just kind of after about two months I think I gave up and just went to the bottle and I felt I felt that she'd had some of the goodness exactly the antibodies and all of that yeah. that's really important in the first mm. few yeah. weeks isn't it yeah that's right what was your experience Bobby <laughs> well my first one was, was uh, a little bit hungry and I never seemed to be able to give her enough food and but uh, I did breastfeed both of mine uh, even the first one, eventually she got the hang of it. She kept slipping off and <laughs> didn't, didn't seem to be able to plug in properly. I didn't have that trouble with number two. And did you get a lot of help and support from the professionals? Not a lot at all. I don't. That was a different that. time to now, of course. Yes. But um, it is yeah. interesting about how the support I think has been ramped up these days. Mm. I, I was think. I was very impressed with, with what. Uh, Debbie was saying um, the way that they do support them and it's very non-judgmental and I think that is just so important mm-hmm. I mean I was quite concerned when I asked her about if mums don't feed do they feel guilty and do they ever get over that and I really don't know because she didn't give me a, an absolute I straight think, answer I think you do because I really wasn't because of circumstances it made it quite difficult my feeling is if ever my daughter's not well with a cold or whatever I Sometimes my mind does go back to that time and I'm thinking, oh, you know, is it the, the breastfeeding thing? Mm-hmm. Although actually she's, she's fine most of the time. You know, she doesn't, she's not susceptible to cold, really. But, you know, you do, you do worry. Because it you only want. lasts mm. a short while, I believe. Oh, is that right? The immunity, yeah. I thought it set them up for life. Oh, I don't think so. Oh, right. Oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, well, you could, uh, no. You, there's, you, probably, there's probably wise tales about it, isn't there? There's a wise tale 
about absolutely everything, yep. isn't it? Oh, yes. Where yeah. would we be without old wives' tales? <laughs> <laughs> but an interesting topic. And um, as I said earlier, really mm. looking forward to next month as well. So if you do know any dads-to-be out there, I suggest that you get them to tune in to this show next month because I think that's going to be a very interesting... In fact, I know it's going to be a very interesting yes. topic talking about uh, how men get their chance yeah. to uh, be together and hear all about what's coming... <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a very good interview, that one. Yes, um, yes, it is. Everyone will enjoy it next month. Well, moving on shortly, we will be listening to Mary Archer. Yes, Dame Mary Archer, no less, who's talking about her career in science and how she's encouraging women to be involved in science as well. This is 21st Century Women. A doctor, a dame, and recently appointed by the Prime Minister, Theresa May, to become Chair of Trustees to the London Science Museum, Dame Mary Archer tells Susie Thorpe about her extraordinary life from posts at Cambridge University as head of the NHS Trust to standing up for public services and her long-standing involvement with renewable energy. This most impressive and extraordinary woman feels very lucky in life. You were once asked if you thought you had been lucky in life, and this was a Guardian interview in 2014, and you said you were being very, very lucky in education, in your innate abilities, lucky in the opportunities given and in jobs. How would you inspire women to achieve all that you have achieved so far? <laughs> well, uh, Susie, first to say I do think I've been very lucky. Not least, I might have added, uh, in being born when I was rather than a hundred years before, when, as you know, girls had to struggle and men had to struggle on their behalf for even secondary education, let alone higher education. So that uh, battle's long been won. About sort of inspiring women, I think the first thing I'd say is, of course, not all women want to follow the same path in life. It's been my choice to be a working woman all my life through now what could be an age of retirement. It's entirely my choice, but it wouldn't be everybody's choice. And I actually always rather admire people who do retire and take up a hobby. I suppose, I think all I could say for, to young women or, or indeed young men is follow your own passion. You were recently reappointed as Chair of Board of Trustees at the Science Museum by the Prime Minister. That's a huge congratulations to be reappointed. I'm very impressed. Is the women gender equality issue still one of your top priorities when it comes to girls and women in the world of science? I mean, do you think that patriarchal view is still within the establishment or do you think they're moving into the 21st century? Well, there's certainly an issue about keeping girls switched on uh, to science, particularly physics and engineering. If we don't make full use of one half of that talent pool, we're not doing the best for UK PLC. But on a more individual level, you know, not everyone wants to be a scientist or an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it may be. 
not to see the potential of those careers is to be shut off from an opportunity. And uh, the life of a scientist, I think, is a, is a wonderful life. In the Science Museum group, and we're five museums, of which the Science Museum itself in Exhibition Road is the great flagship, we work hard on igniting a spark of curiosity in both girls and boys, and indeed in our visitors of all ages. But we are the most visited by children of all the national museums. Perhaps that's not surprising, given science is important in the school curriculum. Every year, through the doors of our five museums, with their teachers in booked school groups, we have over 600,000 school children come. Mm. So we have an enormous opportunity, and I would say duty and responsibility to show those young people not only that science could be a great career, but that our culture is has developed on science. Mm. That's almost explicit now, our culture is so digital. In terms of turning girls off science, there's evidence that early attitudes are formed quite young in primary school, maybe partly by parents as much as mm. by teachers. Then in the age group 11 to 14, both girls and boys tend to lose interest in science, or you might say they gain an interest in something else, you shouldn't be negative all the time, but girls lose it faster than boys. The evidence that I'm aware of shows that there's a range of reasons. Partly, there is the cultural thing about science is not often seen as cool. I think it's immensely cool, but girls at puberty may not want to seem unusual by pursuing science and maths, if it is regarded as unusual. You grew up in Surrey, and Mm. your father was a chartered accountant. He used Mm. to practice mental arithmetic with you at home. And then you, well, he suggested, this is what it says, that he suggested that you continue with languages at university, but you didn't. You turned to chemistry. What gave you that inspiration? I mean, I think I always wanted to be a scientist almost before I knew there was such a thing. So I always liked to know, you know, how things worked and what things were made of. My father told me that um, I conducted my first scientific experiment at the age of 10 when I tied an earthworm into a knot to see if it could untie itself, which it could not. At my uh, primary school in Epsom, there weren't science classes, but there was a room called the Discovery Room in the attic of this old country house that had been made into a school. And that had a lot of wonderful things that I now recognise were scientific apparatus. Old-fashioned now, of course, but there was a gold-leaf electroscope and there was an axolotl in a bottle. But there was a wonderful, large, glistening crystal of sulphur. And I sort of twigged that had something to do with chemistry. So as soon as I got to secondary school, where my first chemistry lesson centred round, we all were taught to use a Bunsen burner. I always thought that was the subject for me. And my father, once he slightly got over, I think he loved languages, he loved Italian, and he loved history. And having a bookish daughter, I think he kind of thought that would be nice if I followed there, but he was enormously supportive. When it comes to role models, do you think they play a huge part, especially for women? I mean, but is it important for men also to see women in particular role models? Women have been written out of history Mm. for a long, long time, and we're only just discovering women in history Mm. when it comes to the Second World War yeah. and how the women flew the the planes during the Second World War from one airfield to yeah. another 
and scientists and inventors, all women. And I'm finding out about it now, let alone when I was younger. I, it would have changed my life if I'd have known a little bit more. Do you, do you find that you found that along the way or you, it's not been really your sort of zone, really, I suppose, because you've been so busy? Well, no, I would absolutely agree with you, Susie, uh, that women have been written out of history, no question about it. That film, Hidden Figures, was very interesting, it was, I thought. But it, it had its point, point It had it? its point, yeah. absolutely. There was undoubtedly institutional prejudice. Uh, the wonderful University of Cambridge was very slow, I think. Um, mm. Women weren't granted what was called the title of their degrees till after the Second World War. Yes. So um, it's very different there now, I hasten to add. Yes, there's no question that women have been written out of history and uh, women's studies and so forth have done a lot to redress that. In terms of role models, Mm. I think there are different perspectives. I don't think I've ever consciously looked at one individual and said he or she is my role model. Mm. And then in terms of role models, the evidence is quite a proportion, and I can't tell you how many, of young women do like a mentor. So I've mentored quite a few young women at their request. And actually, I enjoy that very much. It's almost like being young again, listening to their experiences and hopes and fears. Um, And I think in writing the historic wrong done to women, we have to be careful not to overdo it overstep into anger Mm. um, and think that every misfortune, every failure we have is because we're a woman and it's a man's world. That's not so. Something I believe in, but perhaps you don't, you've had more experience than me, there is often talk about time-limited use of quotas and making all jobs flexible by default. Do you you support this thinking? You mean quotas, Mm. you've got to have all women or a certain proportion of women on shortlists and things. No, I don't really, um, uh, because that's not really a fair fight. 20 or 30 years ago, when I was actually teaching at Newnham College, which remains to this day the only completely all-female undergraduate college at either mm. Oxford or Cambridge I really thought although it had a glorious past of which it and I uh, were proud the time had come to go mixed but they didn't mm. and now I would be less doctrinaire about that okay because it works so amongst all your amazing achievements you co-founded the UK section of the International Solar Energy Foundation for which you were uh, served as a chairman president and now you are patron is it frustrating sometimes not to be able to see a, an end result I mean you're you're this is an on going issues for many, many people and many worlds and many countries rather. Do you find it so frustrating sometimes not to reach that end goal? (laughs) Well, there are a number of things where you will never be able to say job done and as it were, dust dust it off and, and put it away in the filing cabinet. I do like doing things and starting things. And I think if they are worthwhile, then the torch will be picked up by others. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that you're absolved from succession planning. That's an incredibly important part of my job here, actually, at the Science Museum, um, to make sure I've got the next generation of trustees. Well, that's a good point, because I was going to ask the question, how do you pass on the baton on to the next person? I think that... Um, in any team, what you want is people who share the value and purpose of the mission of the organization, but bring to it a diverse range of skills and experiences, and therefore almost necessarily viewpoints. You don't want 
everybody cast in the same mold or they'll all think the same and you'll have a sort of bad case of group thinking. On the other hand, you don't want people who are obstructive, difficult and disagree on principle. That tends to irritate the more sort of um, cooperative of of the team. But um, I think in in building a a board, uh, yes, it's a range of skills, good cross-section of the two genders or however many genders we now recognise and um, also a bit of an age range. You became a dame in 2012. It's an incredible feat, isn't it? And, And how did you feel about it? I was very pleased, of course, and you get the letter about five weeks beforehand and you're sworn to secrecy. Of course, you tell your nearest and dearest, you swear them to secrecy, which sort of works, I think. So I was proud, and but I think it's taken me a little time to realise that it actually is helpful in my role. So to have that kind of designation lends you an air of, what, authority, mm. or um, which hopefully you live up to, but... This was all for your services It was to first NHS, services to it? the NHS because I served on the board of Addenbrooks and the Rose at Cambridge University Hospitals for 20 years, the last 10 of them as chairman. So that was quite a stint and it was such a privilege, such a wonderful organisation. Mm. So, yes, I, I, I think that it was an accolade for the organisation, for the work that we started there Addenbrooke's Abroad, now Cambridge Global Health Partnerships, uh, shared decision-making tools for men and women with cancer. So insofar as these things do come from the organisation and not from the individual, which they do, I hope it reflects something positive on the organisation. Moving forward, the International Solar Energy Foundation. Yes. This is, what is the way forward for you, as, as well as, all, as I said earlier, all your amazing other responsibilities? That seems to be connected, but not connected. It seems to be something from your early years that you've... Yes, that's that's true. Um, I, I'm not active in research now. I have edited a series of books. I feel strongly that renewables do have a very important part to play. I think that there is absolutely no denying that climate change is happening. And to my way of thinking as a scientist, uh, there is no way that increasing levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are not to blame. It follows that we must bear down on those emissions. So um, low carbon sources of fuel, and I wouldn't exclude nuclear in advanced countries that can take good care of nuclear reactors. But renewables, wind and solar in particular, um, have a part to play. Uh, But given um, that we are discovering more sources of oil and gas and exploiting more through fracking, equally I think it's important that we pursue carbon sequestration. There are various technical ways of doing it. They don't quite add up economically, but I think the time will come. And I think that that would be prudent because to conduct a a worldwide experiment, quite literally, on our thin and fragile atmosphere. Mm. You know, when I was at school, concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was 286 parts per million. It's now over 400. And talking of cars and electrics, obviously Cambridge is your hometown, home city, not hometown. Do you own a car? And if you do, is it electric? No, I wish it were. Um, I still have a diesel because I bought it in the days when that was thought to be more green. I drive all of 500 miles a year on it. I've kept it. If I change, I will definitely change uh, for an all-electric or possibly a hybrid. Yeah. Yes, no question. Thank you, Dame Mary Archer. Thank you, Susie.
Well, that was our Susie Thorpe talking with Dame Mary Archer at the Science Museum in London, and the music was Heroes by David Bowie. I did have to smile when she said that being made a dame, one of the benefits was that people took you more seriously. You know, they shouldn't use the word gravitas, but I think that's what she meant. I would never not take that lady seriously. <laughs> mm. And and she does have so much gravitas. She's very, very bright. She's very clever. She's uh, she's mm. she's quite quite an incredible woman, really, isn't she? Yes, she certainly is, yes. I mean, all that stuff that she was talking about, it, I was trying to think it through and I thought, oh, she's way ahead of me. I don't think I can grab hold of half of that. <laughs> and mentoring as well. You know, she talked about mentoring. I think that's really important. I think... You know, imagine being mentored by somebody like Dame Mary Archer. That would be really something special, wouldn't it? Because that she's would obviously be got loads of ideas. And, mm. you know, I think she'd, she'd be quite an inspiring person. You know, she is one of our inspirational women for 21st century women. Most definitely. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. And, of course, because it's a, a STEM thing, you know, we, we talk about STEM and science, technology, Engineering. engineering and maths yeah. and sometimes there's two M's because there's maths and medicine okay. um, but we talk about about STEM and I guess it's one of the one of the things I'm interested in because I'm in technology but there aren't enough women as she was saying that are coming through that are interested even now it's incredible isn't it I know and she's right I think kids are really interested girls are interested from the younger and they kind of lose interest a bit somewhere along the line and I, I don't really under. I mean, I have to say, my daughter is studying science. She's doing uh, three sciences at A level, but I, I lost interest in in that side of the science. I'm interested in technology and and you know IT, but not necessarily science. And I think it's a shame. I wonder if that's got something to do with that. Um it would appear that most, well, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it always used to be that science teachers were always men. How many science teachers are women these days? That's we're, true. Women inspire young women to do things because they see the role model. And if it's always a man, I, I think it's subliminally you get the idea, oh, science is for men, it's not for women. Oh, well, my, my physics teacher was a woman in, wow. at O-level time. Yeah, she was very impressive, newer stuff. Um, used to have sessions in the evening to look through the telescope at the sky, you know. Now, that's exactly the kind of thing that keeps people interested and perks right. them up. That's you know, right. I think w- w- with chemistry, I think it can get quite difficult because it, a lot of it is memorising yeah, quite complex things. Exactly, yeah. It sort of jumps from mixing things to actually really understanding the equations. It yes. sort of becomes far more sort of text-based than Yeah, than and I'm sure practical. that if you can get through that equation chunk you know once mm. you get through that i'm mm. sure it becomes you know more and more interesting mm. mm-hmm. but yeah very very interesting uh, interview there by our Susie thorpe who's not with us tonight unfortunately but no. um, hopefully she'll be joining us again next month and she was talking of course to dame mary archer this is 21st century women I am just absolutely loving this hot weather. How do you two feel about it? Absolutely love it as well, Linda. Do you really? Of course. I was relying on you, Liz, to be the one who was going to go, I hate hot weather. Are you kidding? No, I, did. I just had this feeling Haven't that you'd be going... you just seen me put two more layers on in the aircon? 
Oh, that's true, actually, yes. You are dressed to the nines, it has to be said. So you like the hot weather as well. Do you like sunbathing? I don't do that anymore, actually. I just like sitting in it. I like feeling the warmth on my body. What's the difference, then, between sitting in it and sunbathing? I don't lie down on a towel. Oh, right, yeah. Well, I I think sunbathing takes all shapes and forms. No, I don't... (laughs) I don't lie down on a towel in a bikini either. You'll be glad to hear some of the people that use the footpath along the side of my house. <laughs> but I quite like sitting out, you know, and I feel I feel it is compulsory to have a glass of chilled wine in your hand. Oh, that's definitely compulsory, Linda, without a doubt. It is, isn't it? Oh, yes. I mean, obviously not too much because we're not advocating drinking alcohol here. But just, you know, the odd little half glass of wine is quite nice of an evening when you're sitting in the sun. We found a restaurant a couple of weeks ago and it's right down by the river. And we were sitting in this restaurant by the river, eating a meal, and it was just glorious. What could be nicer? Exactly. Just being by the water. And we were watching ducks going back and forward. Of course, the problem that we do have with uh, with this weather is the garden and keeping it keeping it watered. I've got lots of pots and baskets, and they're a bit of a nightmare at the moment. You've got to continually, in fact, I haven't done it for the last forty eight hours. I'm just suddenly realising all my flowers are going to be wilting and dying, aren't they? Do you use a hose pipe? No, I don't use a hose pipe. I I don't have that many, so I just go back and forward and fill up a it's a very small watering can, about three times, and it's all done. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. How would you like to come and do mine? <laughs> yes. Is that quite like it, actually? There's something rather nice about watering a garden. Oh, yes. It, it's it's quite relaxing, watering gardens, yeah. yes. Having to go backwards and forwards with very large uh, watering cans, uh, I do. <laughs> oh, no, I just use small ones, small inside ones. I've been watering my next-door neighbour's garden from my water butts. I've got two water butts. One feeds the other one, and I don't use them at all myself, and... She's got little veggie boxes, so every night she puts out her watering cans and uh, I fill them up. Is this an over-the-fence thing, then? She kind, kind of, of yeah, yeah. wraps on the fence with her watering can and you well, come she, out. She and puts it by the, the gate and I open the gate to see if they're there and if they are, I fill them up. Yeah. Oh, that's very neighbourly. Well, it's an easy thing to do, isn't it? Mm. I'm not using it. That's I'm not going to water my lawn with it because I don't mind when it's not growing because I haven't got her, to cut it. Give her access to your garden. And it'll save you having to well, do I've work. Well, I've said she can jump over the fence. It's quite low. but <laughs> How do you manage then? Oh, you're just filling them up and passing them back. She does the watering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I right, don't okay. do the watering. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've I incorrectly been... Sorry, I misled over. you. I totally yeah. misled you there. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I haven't been watering my neighbour's garden. I've been... Providing the water. Exactly. And I'm wondering when these butts are going to end because they've just been feeding her garden now for two weeks. That's excellent. Yeah. Are they big water butts? Standard, I'd say. I didn't mean to say is your butt big. I just <laughs> <laughs> it is admirable that you've actually got water butts. You've got two water butts. I didn't install them, Bobby. <laughs> they came with the house. So you, that your predecessor was obviously very keen. She was a gardener. Yeah. So why don't you use the water on your garden, Liz? <laughs> it can do what it likes, Bobby. 
<laughs> you sound a bit bitter about your garden. What's it done to you? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's been growing very well, thank you very much. <laughs> I have given my apple tree two watering cans full, but that's it. That's enough for it in Absolutely. this heat. Absolutely. Two, two. I don't mean two a day. I mean two over the over three the week period. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. Well, I, I expect that will reduce the size of your apples. It could do. This mm-hmm. is a risk I'm willing to take. So what else other than an apple tree have you got in your garden? Well, the raspberries have withered, I'm afraid to say. That would be lack of water, perhaps. <laughs> it could be. You know, these raspberries have been sitting there watching you hand over that water to your next door neighbour. I know. And I bet there's a shout now, Liz, hello, us. How do you feel about compost heaps? Um, what am I supposed to feel about compost <laughs> I don't know. Have you got a compost heap? I don't have a compost no, heap. No, I don't have a compost heap either. And I'm quite disappointed about that. My garden is a bit too small for a compost heap. But I believe they're very good. No, oh, I haven't got a compost heap either, but then my garden is pretty small. <laughs> yeah, but it does, does have a lot of flowers in it. Yeah, mine does too. So a real compost heap is a sign of a proper gardener, isn't it? I think so. All the gardens I've been around in through the National Garden Scheme, they always have a compost heap. And it's not never one of these sort of, you know, you buy the kit from the garden centre. It's something they've self-assembled. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got some spare wood or some leftovers from something and they've built something fairly substantial which they keep feeding. But you see, we had a house when I was growing up and th- it was just in the corner and it was just like a thing in the corner and you just threw all your grass cuttings and stuff in there. Did, it did wasn't fancy. Did you use it after that? Did you use the compost? No, or I don't did think you just so. use it as somewhat to it's smouldered. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember them using it. Yeah, I suppose they must have. They must have dug it into the garden, I suppose. But there was a lot of bird poo in that as well because my, my dad kept pigeons. So he had more bird poo than you can imagine because he had a whole loft of them. He had about, uh, about 50, 60, 70 pigeons. That's got to be very good for the garden. For the garden. There was yeah. people who used to come with sacks and take it away. Oh, yeah. It's like having any animal, really. The, the You mm. know, the... The excrement is very good for the garden, for making things grow. People used to marvel, actually, at the things that were growing with that pigeon poo. My life is surrounded by poo, actually, because there's a lot of birds around my way and they keep messing on my car. And that is really, really nasty. They do that on my car too. And I get very uptight because well, I've not long bought a new car. Yes, yes, exactly. And your car is black, isn't it? It is. And you've got all that white stuff appearing on it. Yeah. It's not good, is it? No, it's not good. I used to have a red one. It never used to be noticed. <laughs> but, but now I've got a black one. Top tip to everyone. If you're buying a new car... Don't buy a black one. You need sort of a blackberry coloured one, don't you? Really, I would you have do, thought. You actually, yeah. Because a lot of bird... Or a speckled one. Yeah. White and black speckled. So it's festival season as well, of course, now, because uh, it's summer and lots and lots of things going on in the area. Is anyone going to anything interesting? I know something that's coming up in Huntingdon. They have a beach party. A beach party? They do. They bring in 
tons and tons of sand mm -hmm. one Sunday. They spread it out in the market square and they have um, chairs, you know, deck chairs, mm -hmm. and the kids come in and they have buckets and spades. They have sandcastle competitions and, and it's great. It's all the churches in Huntingdon, they all get together and do this and it's all free. There's loads of live entertainment, loads of refreshments, which would you believe is all free as well. Wow. I know. They do things like burgers and all that, all that kind of stuff. Ice cream and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I was reading recently in the newspapers about someone who spotted a UFO in the skies and they took photographs of it. And apparently it was a second time in Cambridgeshire, you know, of recent weeks, that someone had seen a UFO. So what do we think? Do we believe in UFOs? Yes or no? Yes. I am uncertain, but I do know that there has been in this area quite a, um, a group have investigated it over the years. Don't ask me any more than that. That's all I know. Oh, we have to dig them up, don't we? I think so, yeah. Mm. I find it kind of fascinating. There was one night we saw two lights in the sky and they were floating around in, in a very strange manner. Very UFO-like, if you know what I mean. We rushed out for a camera, we looked at it. It was kind of flickering and suddenly I went... I know what those are. They're Chinese lanterns, aren't they? There had been a party somewhere else in the village and they'd obviously been lighting Chinese lanterns. But the way that they were swaying around, it did look like, you know, a formation of UFOs kind of dancing around in the sky. It was really amazing. What does a UFO look like? Well, that's just it, you see. We don't know, do we? But I've seen quite a few of these documentaries which are quite interesting, and how they all reckon that it, it are circles in the corn and all that business. And I thought that we'd proved that those were man-made. Ah, but are they all man-made? Oh, so you think that men are copying the aliens? Why not? <laughs> Our Liz Kelly strayed into Norfolk where she visited an art exhibition at the Salt House Church and she met artist Jill Whitaker from a women's art collective called Link Layers. I've come into the church today at Salt House and wasn't expecting anything like this. Um, links and Layers. I knew there was an exhibition here, but this is called Links and Layers. Would it you is. like to tell me a bit about it? Yes, we're a group of eight artists, all using different mediums and different techniques. We get together every month and um, have a meeting and then sometimes a bit of playing. And then we work towards exhibitions probably about two a year. Mm -hmm. So where do you normally show then? Um, usually we've done Thornham. Wherever we can get a venue, it's quite difficult getting venues, really. Well, this is an ideal venue. It is. It? It's a beautiful venue. Yeah. Yes, very so much. we're in the parish church. Yes, we are. Us. Yes. And it's a very light church. It is very tall, very light, and it's, it, they have exhibitions most of the year here now mm -hmm. to help support the church, and it, it's because it's a good space and good light, yes. Yeah, it is. I've been to an ex. Well, I've probably been to two exhibitions here before. Very, right. very different. Yes. Yeah. 
ours being mixed is, is makes it different. It's not what people are expecting. I think no. most people expect a painting. Exactly, that's what and I came are. in the preconception <laughs> of, yeah. And it's not. Um, so what kind of work do you do then? I work mainly with, um, well, felt. I teach felting and with glass. And I'm also concerned about recycling. So a lot of my work will include recycled. Is that yours? That's mine. (laughs) The chicken made out of recycled carrier bags. It's amazing. It (laughs) looks very like the picture above. Is that actually... The picture I did, there's one with inks on glass. Right. And there's one with little scraps of, again, oddments of fabric that would normally be thrown away that have been stitched together onto a scarf to make a picture. And then one of paper, which again is scrap paper rather than paper that was intended to be used. Yeah. Then I have a series of clothes made out of um, repurposed and recycled materials again. Okay, would you like to talk me through that? Yes, the first one's um, a surgeon's overall, which I have painted with inks and stitched and shrunk and made card buttons for it. The next one's a general purpose science overall which I've added tissue paper to and coloured and shrunk. And is that the summer one? <laughs> yes, that's summer the summer. Plans. That's right. And then there's um, another one made out of all the waste papers, all in tones of blue that I have, papers that mop up work when I'm working, mm-hmm. inks and things like that. And the last one's an overall, which I think came from the RAF, <laughs> and that's been painted and decorated. And the last one on the model is made out of wallpaper coming that's from a wallpaper. She's wearing a sort of a shift, isn't she? Yes, well, it, yes, a big sort of coat that's um, um, made up of patches of wallpaper when you get them from their books, their sample books when they okay, throw them yeah, away. Yeah. So the thought that we may have to make clothes from paper and things that are, will biodegrade as well. Mm-hmm. That's some of it. So that's my particular thing. But everybody here has a different background story and a different theme of their work, really, of where they might start mm-hmm. with it. So yeah, it's very different. Very different. Things, yeah. We have a lace maker. We have machine um, textile artists, a printmaker. Is that the one down the bottom there with the sort of positive and negative images? That's the, a lace maker, oh, who's right, Beth, okay. who's with us. Mm-hmm. And she often uses... Um, well, at the moment, she seems to use architecture and pieces for her work. And then another a stitcher who has used sieves to stitch on. Another girl who's got a bit of a project about rust. She goes walking on the beach and picks up bits of rusty work and then uses them in her work. Then we have two other pieces. One is a printmaker who's done a piece on the First World War. It's very effective, that. It is, very much. It's black and white Quite atmospheric, isn't it? Definitely. Then Rachel, who's done nature's work on fungi and toadstools, all made stitching papers and fabrics. A picture of bluebell woods made out of tiny little pieces of fabric trapped under a piece of net and stitched. I thought that was painted until I got yes, very close. close. You, from a distance, you would think that was a painting, but mm. no, it's all little pieces of fabric. Fused glass... Which is mine. I um, did wonder, yes. And as soon as you mentioned glass, I thought yes. that was yours. And that particular piece is glass put into a kiln over wet sand, so you have quite a bit of texture in it. What makes the holes? Leaving gaps in the glass when you lay it. Okay. Yep. You know, purposely, when they round off when they're melting, so mm. they form a hole rather than a hard line. It's almost like lacy glass. Yes, it is. Yes, that's correct. And, and they're largely sort of inspired by rock pools, are they? Rock pools and sea, yes. 
really, that sort of thing. More nature-inspired stitched and dyed silk for Rachel. Paintings, we have several groups of paintings. Yeah, you've got sort of uh, groups of paintings, haven't you? That's right, yes, really really brightly coloured, yes. And yes. quartets or And then um, <laughs> Sally's also done a little story about thanking the National Health Service because over the years she's had a lot to do with it and she doesn't think they have enough praise. Absolutely so right. Uh, yeah. I love that. It's, it's um, amazing, isn't a it? sort of a yeah, ah. stitch work on um, a kind of a frame that looks like an old-fashioned hospital it screen. It does. That's right. I think it's quite apt. And totally. then she's listed everybody from the tea lady to the surgeons and all the people oh. that she's had to deal with over the years. Mm. It's good to thank everyone it is, who's yes. involved. But people working in the medical line have been very impressed with it. Yeah. So that's been good. So most people are sort of having a story to tell, really. What about the the stools there? um... That's Sally again. She's done those inspired by the pebbles on the beach, but she again has used um, recycled scarves that have been torn up into strips and then knitted Mm -hmm. and formed into pebbles and then put on different stools. So again, something inspired by the sea. Which we're so it's obvious near. to me now. I'm standing back. <laughs> the pebbles. It wasn't close. <laughs> no, up. no, maybe not because there's yeah. lots of colours involved. But yeah. that's where she got her inspiration. And I like the lace top. Yes, the, a lace uh, top with her embroidery. quote. Yes, yeah. a quote from the Bible. And uh, yes, she loves her words. Mm. Sally's very strong on words. So anything we do with her usually has to incorporate words of some sort. Mm. It's quite strong in her artwork. This piece of sort of sculpture in the middle of yes. the aisle. That, I didn't think that would be part of this it is. textile. <laughs> no, yes, we're not all textile artists. No, this Although Chrissy, linen, is it? Limon, limon, I think. She's, um, that is concrete made with a lot of paper Okay. to sort of make it easier to work with. And then the opening, there's um, gold leaf in that opening. And when the light hits it at the right time, it really shines through. Beautiful. So that's yeah. been very carefully placed then. Yes, in order to, to get that light. That. Yes, correct. Yeah. No, I'm very impressed with it all. It's absolutely Thank lovely. Thank you. We've been very pleased with the comments and mm. everything that's been written in the book and the response. Mm. Have you got any more plans? We have. Our one? next exhibition is going to be at Corpusty. We're taking over a gallery for about three weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, so it'll be quite different again, but I think um, we'll be demonstrating. So, yes, it'll be very different to this, but hopefully... Mm. Just as exciting. Where, where is that? Then? Corpus is um, five, seven miles from Holt, going towards Norwich. Okay. Between Aylsham and Holt, Norwich Triangle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an already established gallery that, where she does do quite unusual pieces. Mm. Uh, so we thought we'd like to be there with good space. That was Jill Whitaker with Links and Layers talking to Liz about the exhibition which has just finished at the Salt House Church. The music was Foreigner. Feels like the first time. I love going to art exhibitions. Yeah, me too. What made you go in there? Were you looking well, at the church or was it the exhibition that I've drew been in you the in? the church before and it's because the, they do regularly have exhibitions there. I sort mean, of throughout the summer. It's, it's a bit of a tourist attraction really. Oh, okay. 
Salt we, we, we also, right we also do have to say, what were you thinking about in going to Norfolk, you know, leaving leaving the border of Cambridgeshire <laughs> with presumably your injections intact? <laughs> and going, <laughs> I'm joking. Why did you but, stray? Um, why did you stray into Norfolk? <laughs> um, just... It was the lure of the the sunshine and mm. the coast, but actually, the closer you get to the coast, the cooler it gets. It does, doesn't it? It does tend to be like that. North Norfolk. You've got to watch which way the wind's blowing. <laughs> yes. In fact, I, if I think about it, I was in the church because it was uh, too blowy to actually spend more than five minutes on the beach. Going back to the exhibition, very interesting, and it's it's really fascinating what people can do with recycled equipment, exactly, isn't it? Recycled yeah. Bits and pieces that you'd, I would just kind of either take to the charity shop, I suppose, yeah. or throw in the bin, I suppose I if, if, if you start to do these sorts of things, then people collect for you. And they, that, that lady did say that she had people collecting different colour uh, plastic bags for her yeah, because she's really taken with... This use of it, you know, just making art with it. And and you find yeah. it around the country, people do do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they used, always used to do it in playgroups, making stuff out of junk, didn't Absolutely. they? Absolutely. It's true. Yeah. And I actually, I saw the other day, I was away for the weekend, and I did see somebody had made jewellery out of cutlery. So, oh, that, yeah. you know, they, they twisted it into rings and bracelets and things mm. like that. I love that. Uh, yeah, I, I that do as well. I've, I've seen them made into sort of coat hooks and things, but I wouldn't, couldn't imagine me- sort of wearing the prongs of a fork and <laughs> no. dangling from your it ears wasn't. or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> some, people <laughs> some people would. Some people would. But straying back to your straying into Norfolk, okay. that Salt House Church, I was looking it up, actually, and it looks beautiful. It's a huge place, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and the windows are enormous, and, and there's terrific light there, and I think that's why they have the art exhibitions and there. And is this kind of in the middle of nowhere, or is it in a, in well, a it's town? Well, it's more or less on the coast. I mean, it's uh-huh. only sort of a few hundred yards up from, from the coast itself, and up a pretty little villagey lane, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a nice place. I recommend going there if you are yourself ever straying into Norfolk. <laughs> and there are plenty of reasons to go there. There are. There are, actually. You're absolutely right. It's lovely over there. I, yeah. am, I am pulling your leg. I, I realise. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I'm stunned how down here in England that sometimes you find very, very, very large, over-the-top churches, really, in mm. quite small places. Yeah. And you kind of wonder how many people used to live in that area or was it just a very very wealthy landowner who decided to kind of you know yeah. show off and yeah. build an enormous church maybe maybe that was how it was rather than population based oh i wish i'd been prepared for that i could have i could have mugged up on the history for you, you could couldn't have I? couldn't you i mean mm. what what were you thinking <laughs> i guess uh, we're coming to the end of our program again a huge thanks go to dame mary archer to debbie abbott and to Joe Whitaker. If you're listening on HCR 104 FM, next up is The Country Show with John and Jackie Manders. And if you're listening on Cambridge 105, you can find out what's going on in the area with Summer Saturday. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in August. I can't believe I'm saying August. Until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones. Bye. From Liz Kelly. Goodbye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. <laughs>